Our scripture passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, as we read verses 7 to 9. Hear now the word of God. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the fire of hell. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Oh God, we ask today that you send your spirit to enliven our minds, to enlighten our eyes, and to invigorate our hearts. Would you help us not only to see great things, but to be moved to act on what we know and believe. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As we were reading our New Testament lesson this morning from Romans chapter 13. I was struck by this passage because if you know the life of St. Augustine, then you know that these are deeply impactful verses that St. Augustine tells the story of his own wrestlings with the Christian gospel, with the Christian message. He was had come out of an ungodly philosophy and was trying to overcome it, trying to understand the Christian view of these things and Augustine describes the moment where he, where the gospel struck his heart in such a clear way. Here's the interesting thing. I, I don't know for each of you what it was, that the moment that you, you came to, to Christ. Some of us, many of us may not even remember when it happened. We may have been so young. Uh, for me, it was reading a passage in the Gospel of Romans uh, where I just I realized the, the, the depth of my own sin and the, the depth of the grace of Jesus and how his grace was greater than my own sin. But, but Augustine talks about this moment where he's in the garden and he, he hears the children singing, take up and read, take up and read. And he takes up uh, a copy of the New Testament that he had been reading and he opens to that passage. And I want to read it just one more time. Because he is called to Christ, not by a passage that is uh, setting forth a sweet, gentle gospel message. Think about this passage as we read it. Augustine is awakened by a call to war. Listen to this again. He says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Isn't it interesting how the thing that awakens the heart of this man is the call to do battle against his own flesh and the wickedness of his own heart. That's the thing that wakes him up. That is the thing that grabs him by the shoulders and shakes him. 
Well, let me suggest something to you that in this passage this morning, Jesus is telling us something very important, something that is so serious that he uses this extreme and actually upsetting imagery to get it across. Jesus wants you and I to know that the disciple of Jesus lives in a state of war and has to live with a warfare mentality. In this passage, Paul is calling us to wake up and Jesus here, I would suggest, is calling us to war. In both cases, we need to hear that. And so the life of a disciple is a life spent at war with sin, Jesus says. And so this morning, I just want us to think about war. Uh, not, not literal war, but instead the war that has to take place in all of our hearts as followers of Christ. And if you're not a follower of Christ, you are actually called to make war also. But you're called to make war by going to Christ first. And we'll talk about that too. But this morning, I want us to see three things about our war with sin. Battling sin is necessary. Battling sin is costly. And battling sin is worth it. Those are our three points. And so let's just go right to it. Um, First, battling sin is necessary. Notice that this command to battle sin is given as a command. It is stated as an imperative, right? Jesus doesn't say, you know what would really be good for you is if you made war with sin, right? Jesus doesn't just say, think about it. Uh, Think about doing battle with sin. Just consider it. No, he says, don't just let sin have its way and ruin you. Make war. Fight it. It is worth it. And our spiritual lives are, are meant to be spent on edge, at the ready, always prepared, taking sin with deadly seriousness whenever it rears its ugly head. If you look at Jesus' words here, he says, He says repeatedly that our own willingness to do battle with sin is a matter of heaven and hell. This is from the same man who, when he preached in the Sermon on the Mount, showed us that the only hope that we have is the grace of Jesus Christ. He is not now walking back and saying your works are what your spiritual life hangs upon. And yet he's also saying the person who doesn't make war with sin is somebody who hasn't known me. Right? The reason why it's a matter of heaven and hell is that there is no such thing as a person, a forgiven person, who won't do battle with their own sin. We're not talking about victory. We're talking about at least fighting. When you refuse to do battle against sin, you are not showing the fruit of someone who's been united to Christ. That's what Jesus is telling us here. Right? You, if you were in a war zone... And you were to see the enemy in uniform and just let him walk on by. And in point of fact, he sees you and he lets you just walk on by. Why would that happen? It may well be Jesus is suggesting that you may not be in uniform. And you may not be in uniform because you may not even be in the battle. Right? The sort of battle that might cost you a hand. Or cost you an eye, right? You may be no threat to sin at all. You may not even be in this war. You may already have made peace with the one who is supposed to be your enemy. And Jesus warns us, and he warns us with the strongest possible words, that we have to do battle. We have to. He's not saying that we defeat the enemy. But he's saying we fight. Now, the fight isn't optional. It's, it isn't just something for super Christians. It's something for all Christians, Jesus says. 
Now, there are three problem areas that, that can prevent us from doing what Jesus says here. They are theological problems. There's no way to dodge the theological language we're about to talk about here. The reason is this. Theological problems never just stay theological, right? They, they always end up being practical. They always end up showing themselves in our lives. And so the three challenges to doing, to doing war that I want us to, to reckon with this morning are legalism, antinomianism, I'll tell you what that means, and fatalism. And I want to address each of them because they are so deadly to our souls, on the, on the one hand, you have legalism, right? We, we can be very tempted toward legalism when we think that making war against sin is the thing that will make us acceptable in God's sight, right? Um, if you think that your good works or your good efforts or your clean nose make you loved by God, if you think that those efforts are the reason why you have peace with God, if you think they are the reason why God has justified you, you say, well, I've made war against sin. I'm at least trying. That's how I know, right? Or I have peace with God because God knows that I don't love my sin, right? And if you, if you answer in that way and you hinge the peace that you have with God on these things, then that is legalism, which is always a temptation for us. Because we all, at one time or another, tend to fixate on what we've done or how religiously serious we are. And it is very easy if we're doing well to sort of rest on those achievements. We, we feel secure because we've made advances in our spiritual life that we feel like we can see and we can notice. But in reality, we're meant to rest in and receive Jesus. Jesus is who is supposed to give us our security. He is the reason why we feel secure, not us. And here's what legalism does. Legalism seeks to add something to Jesus and his work. So the thing that makes us secure, in our minds at least, if we're, if we're living in this, is not just, I am resting in Jesus, but I am resting in Jesus and doing this, X, Y, or Z. Someone who's caught up in the throes of a legalistic mindset will definitely try to stop sinning. But that, that isn't the same thing as making war on sin. Making war on sin doesn't just mean to stop the acts of sin. It means resting in Christ such that we live with practices intended to cut sin off at the root, at the level of affection, the level of desire. Asking God to make us people who don't just stop sinning, but people who actually have a greater love for Jesus than for sin and a response and a repulsion to the things of sin. And that is a lifelong work. It's, it's a work that's never done. It's a work that's never finished in this life as long as sin is still alive in our hearts. But that's what it looks like to make war on sin, right? Legalism is an obstacle to that war, because it stops the fight before it takes place. Why, why is that? Because it focuses on the surface, but not on the inner war that has to happen. Without union with Christ by faith alone, we won't do any of those things in the power of Christ. And we won't do it in a spirit of, of contrition. You know, Paul is really clear in Galatians. No one is justified by works of the law. Legalism is not a gospel option. Raw willpower will never work. It will never change our hearts. Legalism seeks to add something to the finished work of Jesus and to trust in that thing that has been added. 
And because of that, hopefully you can see legalism is a real obstacle to making war on sin because it keeps us fighting at the surface instead of getting below the surface of what is really happening. Now, on the other hand, you have antinomianism. And I know antinomianism, what a wonderful, easy to say word. Uh, It rolls right off the tongue. Antinomianism is a long word that just means against the law. Uh, Or you might even say lawless. It's lawlessness. Uh, An antinomian is someone who says, you know, it's, it's all of grace. So God's revealed moral will doesn't matter for me now. I can live however I want. You might hear someone misuse a biblical phrase by saying something like, I don't have to obey God anymore. I'm, a, I'm not under law. I'm under grace. That would, be a, that would be the sort of outworking of antinomianism in a practical way that you can hear and see. And this error, either intentionally or unintentionally, sets aside the law of God in the life of the believer and says it isn't even relevant for us. An antinomian doesn't love God's law. They don't see God's law as, as a good thing. They couldn't pray Psalm 119. You know, Psalm 119 is a very lengthy psalm. But the writer in this long psalm praises the perfection of God's law. They see the law. An antinomian only sees the law as an, another enemy. They only see the law as another thing that's out to hurt us. They see the law as something that smashes and crushes the Christian, but they can't see the good or the positive that grows out of it. And so that's antinomianism. It's, it's lawlessness. Now, at first, you might think to yourself, well, if I'm going to pick one of those, I want to be the antinomian, right? I mean, these guys at least are talking about grace, right? They're, they're the good guys, right? Um, and yet here is what I want you to see. The legalist adds his own works to Jesus' works, but the antinomian is really a legalist in grace's clothing. And I want to show you how. Uh, I want you to look with me at a passage that we've seen before in Matthew. And I don't often tell you to turn back to other passages, but it might be helpful here if you've got your Bibles open. If you look in Matthew 15.3, in Matthew 15.3 and in Matthew 15.6, Jesus asks the Pharisees why they break the commandments of God for the sake of tradition. There's something I think really helpful here to showing how these, it's sort of like a snake that eats its own tail. That's what legalism and antinomianism is. So he says, he tells the Pharisees they break the commandments of God for the sake of tradition. So in other words, they seem to be legalists up front, right? They love the law so much that they want more of it. Right? They want the law so much that they add to it. And they add this command. They add this tradition on top of what God has already said. These guys are going above and beyond in their law keeping. So you think that he's taking issue with legalism here. And he is. And then in verse 6, though, he says this. He says, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. For the sake of tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, let me bring this together. I need this to make sense to you. I want you to see why legalism and antinomianism are two sides of the same coin. I want you to see why it's a snake eating its own tail. Because in Matthew 15, 3 and 6, Jesus tells the Pharisees that they are adding, that by adding, they have subtracted. By adding, they have subtracted. When they add to God's commandments... 
which is legalism, they actually subtract from the commandments. Isn't that fascinating? They start out as legalists and they become antinomians. They start out by adding to God's law and they end up out and and they think they're outdoing God's law and then they end up lawless as a result. Do you see that? How legalism and antinomianism are two sides of the same coin there. Um, James Henley Thornwell was an old Presbyterian minister in the South in the 1800s. And uh, Thornwell makes this comment. He says, he says, the gospel, like its blessed master, is always crucified between two thieves. Legalists of all sorts on the one hand and antinomians on the other. They're crucified between two thieves. The former robs the Savior of the glory of his work for us, and the other robbing him of the glory of his work within us. See, both errors are thieves of God's glory. Lawlessness ends in legalism. Legalism ends in lawlessness. They are two sides of the same coin. They subtract from God's law. Both of these things are deadly mistakes. They, 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 they strike at the very motives that drive us to make war against sin. You see, the motivation is so important here. What is it that's driving you? Why are you doing this? Why are you making war on sin? If you're making war on sin so that you can be saved, that's legalism. That's hopeless. We'll never be able, you will never be able to make enough war on sin so that you can finally make yourself acceptable to God. There's not enough sin in your life that you could eradicate to make yourself acceptable to him. You can't wash yourself enough. You can't cleanse yourself enough. You can't, that's the whole testimony of the entire, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. Look at the book of Leviticus. It's all about the fact that we can't wash ourselves. It's all about the fact that we can't cleanse ourselves. And so if you try to make war on sin, thinking that's going to erase your sins, then you've made the mistake of legalism. But if we refuse to make war at all, that's lawlessness. If we make war on sin because we've been saved and because we are in Christ and because we want to be like the Savior we love, that's Christianity. But make no mistake, a Christian who won't fight his or her sin is a contradiction in terms. Now, it may be that you, that you, want, that you say, well, I really don't think legalism is my problem and, and antinomianism doesn't sound like me either. There may be some of you who would say, I have tried to battle sin. I have tried to battle sin and I feel so defeated and I feel so beat down that I've just given up. And I think a good word for this would be fatalism, right? Fatalism, fatalism is this belief that there's nothing we can do. We're totally helpless. You know, what's going to happen can't be changed. So we might as well fall over and give up. And, and, I, and that is a defeatist attitude. That's another word for it. You could call it defeatism if you want. It's a defeatist attitude that essentially says there's no hope for me to beat sin I may as well let sin have its way and hope that in the next life I'll be glorified and we can see success there that I've just never seen here in this life. And I want to give you one reason why that is a mistake. And it's very simple. Jesus is convinced that the fight is possible. Jesus, you read the passage with me this morning, right? Jesus calls us to fight. He doesn't call us to fatalism, right? Not only that, 
But if this will shake you out of your doldrums, then please hear this warning. There are no perfect Christians in this life, but there are also no defeated Christians in this life. We all experience failures. We all know what it is. We know what it is to disappoint God, this side of the cross. All Christians have fallen, often painfully, and we have had to see God work through our weakness to develop growth and maturity. Do not let your past defeats get you down. Don't let them convince you that you will never have victory over sin. It's not, it's not true. Paul gives us a promise from God in Philippians 1.6. And it's a phrase, it's a passage you may have even memorized before. It's where Paul says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul is talking about spiritual growth. He's also talking about war against sin. And he's saying that it is a lifelong thing that God will do in you. Later on in Philippians, he talks about the energy that he labors with that comes from God. The energy that comes from Christ Jesus. And Paul is saying to us, he is saying to us, there is no room for fatalism, Christian. Because what is the last thing that Jesus reminds us of in the Gospel of Matthew? He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That means in your temptations, he's with you. When you're experiencing temptations, you feel perhaps isolated, especially when you're really entertaining sin. You feel especially isolated. You convince, you convince yourself there's no one else there. There's no one else watching. No one else sees. And you forget that there is one who is right there because he promised to be right there. And he didn't just say, I will be with you 80% of the time, but not 100% of the time. He actually uses the word always, doesn't he? I will be with you always. He is there. He is there. And to, to, on the one hand, that might come as a great comfort. That might come as an incredible comfort. And then on the other hand, it may come as a great reproof. Jesus is there. He's there when I'm entertaining sin. Paul is saying that you're not alone. Jesus is saying that you're not alone. And he's saying that if you are in Christ, Jesus, then God himself is with you. And if you're in Christ, then, the, then this promise is real. God will work in you to will and do according to his good pleasure. You are not isolated and alone in this fight. And you are also not hopeless. There is no excuse for dis, dismissing God's law. There is no excuse for trying to lean on God's law. Because you know, as well as, as, well as any of us, if you've read scripture, that you can't wash yourself. And you also know because you're not isolated and alone, then there's no room for fatalism. The fight is real. The fight is possible. And the main point I believe Jesus has for us, at least first here, is that the battle is necessary. The battle is necessary. Now, the second reality that Jesus has for us here is that battling sin is costly. I I mentioned this before, but making war with sin means taking steps to cut off sin at the root. To cut sin off at the level of desire, not just opportunity, not just at the level of action. Sin isn't just something that we do. It is something that we think. It's something that we feel. And only then is it something that we say or do. But it begins in the heart, doesn't it? The the, the work of making war on sin means painful heart surgery that only God ultimately can do. 
Now, Jesus talks about the cost of doing war with sin with his, this language that he uses here. He, he doesn't just say cut off sin. He says cut off anything that is feeding your sin, anything that is causing you to sin. In other words, he's saying take it back a level. Take it back further than just the action. Take it back to its foundation. Take it back to its root. And he gives the examples, and he doesn't give light examples, right? He doesn't say, he doesn't say throw away that book, right? He doesn't say throw away that remote or you know whatever. He gives examples of something that would 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 mangle you for the rest of your life: your hand, your foot, your eye. He says, "Are these things causing you to sin? Get rid of them." Now, I don't think it's necessary for me to say this but boy i'd hate for someone to take me literally here jesus is not commanding us to mutilate our bodies but he is saying that the battle against sin and the the battle against evil in our lives is that is that serious it's that extreme it's that important it's it's meant to be costly we we want to be so comfortable and we're modern people we found ways we forged the the western lands we forded the rivers we we climbed mountains we made it all the way to oregon along the trail for crying out loud and and we are people who conquer and and our previous generations didn't do that so we could live in discomfort we think and now here we are we've got comfortable homes and we've got the air conditioning we've got the cars we've got grocery stores we are just accustomed to comfort at every point. Jesus isn't saying, Jesus is not outlining for us comfortable lives here in this passage. He is saying that we need to be willing to lose the very comforts we live by and then some. Battling against sin is supposed to be costly. It means anything that's making us sin needs to go uh, I, growing up in, in college, especially saw this, especially with my friends. We, we did take the Lord very seriously, and so we were always coming up with ways to battle our own sinful hearts. And one of my best friends ended up getting rid of, of Internet at his, his college dorm for him because Internet pornography was a massive temptation. Um, I can talk about practical ways that you might uh, ruin your devices so that that's not a temptation. I think it's a good idea. Um, there was a coworker of mine in high school. He stopped listening to a particular band that uh, he liked a lot because the things they were talking about really affected his heart. Uh, he felt himself becoming more profane, more sinful in the ways that he felt and talked to others. Um, in his own war against his own profane heart, he took Jesus' word seriously and he cut off things that he loved, but they were a source of sin for him. Um, if there's something that you know in your life, you know. You know it's causing you to sin. You know that it's feeding your own sin. Jesus says it is better to go to heaven without it. It's better to go to heaven without it than to sink, clutching it to your chest, holding it and saying, I can find a way to manage this. I can find a way to have this thing that I love. I can keep it and I can keep and I can keep Christ somehow. And you think you can have both. And instead you find yourself being dragged down by the millstone. Tied around your neck. Except it's not tied around your neck. It's in your hands and you won't let it go. Why hold on to it? It's not worth it. That's what Jesus is saying. And I don't. There is, there is 
there is not enough time for me to sit here and enumerate the many possible ways that things in your life may be causing you to sin. I just, we could write a whole book and it would be fatter than the Bible of sins that you could commit and things that could cause you to sin. You have a sinful relationship with a person, with a thing. Are you abusing medication or alcohol? Do you harbor secret prejudices against other people or people groups? Are there things that you believe God is convicting you about that you need to let go from your life? Things that need to go and you know it and yet you've decided that you would just hold on to it, right? Jesus Jesus uses an illustration here of a painful act. Removing your hand is, is, not, a, is not something a comfortable Westerner does. Unless it means life or death. Uh, you know the story maybe of Aaron Ralston who was hiking in Utah. And as he was climbing, the boulder dislodged as he's climbing down through a canyon. And it crushed his right hand against the wall of the canyon. You probably know this story, or some of you at least. Um, of course, now I'm old enough that I realize something that happened in 2003 is not common knowledge anymore, necessarily. Um, uh, no one knew he was trapped in this canyon. He was all alone. And after five days of being trapped, he couldn't move his arm. And so he knew what he had to do. The only way for him to escape was to actually remove his own hand from his body. And he had to remove this thing that in itself was good, but it was going to destroy him. And, uh, and I won't get graphic, but Aaron did escape from that canyon. He's still alive today. But Aaron does not have his right hand. Right? He bears the mark of his battle. And Jesus says, you must be willing to see the thing that you love go if it is destroying you. There are things in your life that are killing you. Are you willing to cut off those avenues of sin in your life so that you can enjoy the goodness and the freedom that God has for you in Jesus? It may be killing you, but the point of the illustration is that parting with sin is painful. It is, especially if we've grown to treasure our sin, especially if we've grown to treasure it, and it almost is like it's become a part of us. Parting with it can be as painful as separating flesh from our own body. Have you reckoned with the costliness of fighting sin? Are you willing to embrace that cost? It is not easy It is not meant to be easy because it goes down to the level of heart. And heart surgery is hard surgery. The challenge is not a sign that something is wrong. Actually, the challenge is a sign that something is right. And you're you're actually on the right course. And that's the second point for us today. Jesus wants us to know that battling sin is costly, not comfortable, and not easy. Jesus says in this passage, yes, it may sting. Yes, it may hurt. But third and finally, Jesus wants us to know that battling sin is worth it. Uh, It may be painful to see that thing go. Jesus says that as hard as it is, it's better to go to heaven without those things. He tells us he tells us that heaven is on the line. And it's not just heaven. I I want you to know, you know, we're not talking about something that's far off. As Westerners, we we convince ourselves that we're going to live really long lives. We just all think, I will live forever. Um, and that's because we live in a time where the, it's not, death is not nearly as common. Imagine you live in the 15th or 16th century where most uh, childbirths do not go well, where most people have seen their whole families die. Um, it's much more common to realize that life is fleeting and, and not uh, something that is guaranteed. Jesus tells us that it's not just heaven. 
I want you to know that Jesus is also saying that it's worth it to say no to sin today, now, immediately. It's, it's worth it in the here and now to let go of sin. All right, I'm talking experientially now to do battle with sin because sin brings misery and sorrow now. It brings misery now. It darkens the heart and mind now when we do it. It takes the beautiful things that we experience and, and it sours and it makes them bitter. The experiences of our, of our heart when they're taken up with sin are, are miserable and they drag us down to hell even today in the, in the moment, right? Every sin we commit is a little taste of hell. It's like, it's like if we had a steady diet of, diet of poison. And the more we tolerate it in our life, the more used to it we become. And yet unknowingly, we also become slower. We become more lethargic. We become less alert. We wonder why, why we aren't the person we thought we used to be. It may be that the poison has slowly and bit by bit destroyed us. And we never saw it because we let it act on us so slowly. And that's how sin works as we treasure it, as we hold on to it, as we practice it. We become acclimated to sin gradually. Our consciences become seared. And after a while, we discover that who we are and the way we live is poisoned by all the junk that has started to accumulate. I want you to know sin has immediate consequences. It chokes. It suffocates it's ugly. It ruins and devastates. It strips life and love from all that it touches. Sin has immediate consequences. It matters in the here and now. But it's hard to miss Jesus' words in this passage because as I just mentioned, it isn't just our daily experience that's on the line. Sin won't just give us a bad day or wreck our families. It costs us eternity. We aren't meant to just focus on life in the here and now. Jesus turns our eyes to the world to come in this passage, doesn't he? He talks about eternity here. The new heavens, the new earth, right? On, in the eternal state, when we'll be purified from all sin, we'll be made right once and for all. There will be no more mourning or weeping. There will be no more sickness or death or any more tears. Right? We focused on these things and I hope that in all these things, you'd be able to say, yes, heaven is, is worth it. I want us to end by focusing on the positive affirmations of the worth of doing war with sin. And I want to do it by quoting Jesus. He says, it is better for you to enter life. It's better for you to enter life. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us with all the authority of God himself, that the kingdom of God is better than sin. Self-denial is better than sin. That life is better than death. Jesus promises us that by his power, not through extraordinary means, through the ordinary means of grace, God has not left us hopeless. He's not left us. It's not like there's some secret weapon out there that you just don't know about that none of us are aware of. He's saying, use the ordinary means of grace. What are the ordinary means of grace? We sometimes talk about this. The word of God, prayer, the sacraments. This, none, of this, none of this is remarkable in one sense, right? Especially not if you've been here and you've been around your church. You know that we saturate our services in the word of God and prayer and the sacraments. God tells us that these are the means that he works through. These are the things that he uses. 
He's, he doesn't expect you to be superhuman. He will be superhuman for you. How serious, though, are you about fighting sin? Or have, you, have, you, have you become a fatalist? Have you decided that there's just no way that you're ever going to have victory, and so you've laid down arms and you've stopped fighting? Uh, is it possible that you have, in fact, been resting on your own works and your own deeds, and you find security in your own actions or maybe in your own previous successes? Are you willing to fight? Are you even in the battle at all? Here's the million-dollar question as we conclude. How do we fight this battle without becoming a legalist and without becoming an antinomian? How do we avoid the two thieves Jesus is crucified between? The answer is actually found not in the right battle strategy and not in checking out of the war altogether. The answer of the gospel is found here. Christ was crucified between two thieves, laying down his life for both. See, his intention for you and for me is that we fix our eyes on him. That our gaze be fixed on him and that our eyes be taken off of ourselves. I don't know what you thought of the song that we sang right before, the the hymn of preparation, Yield Not to Temptation. Um, Did this song sound like a legalistic song to some of you? Maybe. Uh, Did this song sound like a lawless song to some of you? Maybe. Think Think of what he says here. He says, he says, ask the Savior to help you, comfort, strengthen, and keep you. He is willing to aid you. He will carry you through. Notice that the fight against sin, the way, now this song is not inspired, of course. <laughs> but notice that it says, he aids you. He carries you. This is a song about gospel resting. This is a song about gospel resting. Right? The other thing that it, that it says is very practical. It says, Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you, some other to win. There is a snowball effect that happens when we do battle against sin in our lives. Because as we see one sin defeated in our life, we see what it is to follow Christ. We see what it is to rest in what he does and what he can achieve for us. And then we find that when the next temptation comes, we know what to do. We set our eyes on the Savior. We've done this before. We've been through this before. We've done this battle before. We set our eyes on Jesus again. We don't yield to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help us some other to win. Now, the cross of Christ shows us the holiness of God and the graciousness of God. Right? The cross is a picture of the fullness of Christ and who he is for us. The cross shows us that we can't add to the law of God and that we cannot satisfy the law of God. That honor belongs to Jesus alone. And yet the cross shows us the lengths God will go to to see how dreadful sin is and how much we should hate it in our own lives when it crops up. The cross is Jesus showing us what, we, what he will do to see victory take place in our lives He is willing to die to see sin defeated in your life. In other words, crucified between between two extremes and two errors, we find the key and the hope of making war on sin, and it is found in the face of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for your people today. I pray for them because we know how powerful sin is. The history of the world up until the time of your son was one long record of men and women yielding to sin or trying to defeat sin in their own power. 
But your son came and he defeated sin for us. He devastated the devil and his minions, dealing them a final blow that they could not recover from. We love you and we want to be like you. I ask for those who feel discouraged and defeated by their sin, O oh God. I ask that you would work mightily in their hearts through their, your word. Would you convince them that not only is it possible for them to make war on sin, but, but convince them that it's worth it too. And convince them that they are not alone in the fight. Convince every one of us that in your son, our sin already lays defeated at his feet. Help us to live in the midst of that victory over sin that you've already won for us. Help us to walk in it. Help us to dwell in it. Help us to rejoice in it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.